Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Bible says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, and the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let him give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in the flesh than all the children which did eat of the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring 
them in. Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were all in his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. If you would throw your ribbon in here and we'll return. But let's go over to Luke 16 and I would like to set this up so that when it comes time to go through again of Daniel, we'll be able to just uh, make our way quickly. In Luke 16, Jesus is teaching a parable. He's teaching a story that is relatable and parallel to the book of Daniel chapter 1. Now, some of us are only familiar with Daniel, with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego as far as in Sunday school and in the little kid's story. But it's certainly not a little kid's story, but it needs to be attended to. And so what happens here is Jesus is telling a story, and he says in verse 1, And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So what we're doing here is in Daniel's, we are teaching that there's going to be an exchange throughout the book of Daniel. Nations will rise and he's going to prophesy the exchange of power and dominion that is throughout history. But he's going to do it in a way that is foretelling. So to us, it looks like we're just making our way through history. But in Daniel's time, of course, it's prophecy. Therefore, it isn't history. So we're looking at that and we have to keep that in our mind. That that is what is happening throughout the entire book of Daniel. We have an exchange of dominion, full global dominion, and power. Now when Jesus tells a parable or a story, he's telling it as a riddle, knowing that his listeners are aware of this and they're going to look in between the lines of the story. So you have to have your ears open. You have to be inquisitive in your mind. You, you don't want to just sit there as if you're reading a newspaper. And so what he starts out here, he says, uh, he says this unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man. The rich man is God himself. And what it does is he gave dominion or power in a business way, at least according to this story, unto his steward. But then look what happens. There's a transfer of this power because it says that his steward, he was accused that he had wasted his goods. And so what happens is is the steward now in this picture is Israel. God gave to the nation of Israel dominion. He gave them a king. He gave them a kingdom. And they were supposed to be the stewards of this. And they were supposed to exercise dominion in a national way. But they screwed it up. So we find in the days of Jesus, he's telling them, you are going to lose your stewardship. You're going to lose your place. Now, what's interesting is how this story plays out. He set them up, Israel, to be a superior nation. But they wasted his goods. And what happened was the sermon that we did last week was is that they ended up being cursed. They broke the law many, many times, and therefore they had to endure the curse, and therefore dominion was about to be lost. Now look what he says here, though, what's interesting. Verse 2, it says, And he called him the steward. And he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of you? Give an account of thy stewardship, 
for thou mayest no longer be steward. You're going to lose what you had. Then the steward said within himself, and you get to be a fly on the wall and you're thinking, well, what shall I do? I'm going to lose everything I have. What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, which just means that he's lazy, because he certainly could dig. And to beg, I am ashamed, which means that he's prideful. So what am I going to do? I'm going to be homeless. He comes up with this concocted idea. Verse 4, I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he's coming up with this idea. Well, what, I'm going to have to be a little conniving here uh, with the business people so that I don't go homeless. So what he's going to do is he's going to grease palms and rub elbows with people so that he has gain when he becomes homeless, that he has a safety net so that he has a place to live. So verse 5, So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. Now, of course, there's no currency. They paid it in, in bartering. So I owe you a hundred measures of oil. And look what he says. Take a thy bill, sit down quickly, and write out 50. It's only half of what he owes, but at least we're gaining some cash. So what's happening here is the master of the business, the Lord, he is going to get some money. And so he'll be happy. At least he's going to get 50 rather than 100. And plus, this guy that we're doing business with, he's getting a great deal because he, he owes 100, but he's only got to pay 50, and we're going to call it even. Now, you know, somebody's getting ripped off here. It's a little corrupt business. Then said he to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write four score. Just, just write out eighty. And look what happens. We have two very interesting verses when it comes to eight and nine. It says, The Lord commended the unjust steward. He is unjust. He just ripped off the Lord. But he commends him for doing it. Even though he is unjust, it says the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. He commended him. You're crooked, yes, and you ripped me off. You are going to lose your stewardship, that's for sure. But what he's doing is he's commending him. He's saying, you know, at least you were a little cunning. You used a little strategy. You had some pre-planning involved, and you executed it halfway well. So even though you're a crook and I'm throwing you out, I'm going to commend you for at least being halfway wise and trying to do something so that you don't end up homeless. So the Lord commends him for it even though he is unjust. But then he says something very scathing. Now, verse 8, The Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. That is a very scathing statement. What he is saying is, is, the people of the world who don't have the Word of God and don't have the Proverbs and don't have all the wisdom given to them by God Himself, they are wiser than the children of light. And he's using that illustration 
hey, this guy was a crook. He's a person of the world. He's crooked and corrupt. But at least he was halfway cunning enough and halfway smart enough to try to save himself. He didn't just lay down and die. And then he says something even more interesting. I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That's a pretty clear verse, isn't it? Isn't that easy to understand? That verse? No, no it's not. <laughs> it's not, really. I said a comment on Wednesday night that I think raised a few eyebrows. And then that come have, that's probably pretty regular for, uh, for me. I, uh, anyway, I, I made a comment and I said, um, those of you who have sat under the teaching of biblical teachers that are not premillennial, that don't take prophecy literally, you are missing about 30% of the Bible. And so, after people have attended church for, for 10, 20, 30 years, you're stuck and set in your ways. And then if you hear somebody who's teaching premillennial dispensationalism, it is totally foreign to you. Because you've heard this something all these years. Now, I have to say that people that are of Reformed theology who don't believe dispensationalism, they don't believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible when dealing with Daniel, it's definitely different. There are good Bible teachers in the Presbyterian camp, the Reformed camp. They tell you a whole lot of good stuff, and they tell you the truth. It's not what they tell you, it's what they don't tell you. They leave out about 30% of the Word of God. And this is incredibly important. And let me tell you why. When we're dealing with the book of Daniel, we're going to come across the arch enemy someone by, that we know who is the Antichrist himself. History is telling us, and the prophecies are telling us, there is a coming one who is the evil one in the political realm. Now, if you pay any attention to politics at all, you know this clearly is heading that way. I mean, politics is just an absolute mess. Even in our country, I don't care if you're on the right or the left. It's a mess. But the churches that are of that sort are going to completely ignore the Antichrist coming. And rightfully so, they have to. Because if everybody knew, then how would he slip in? Here's a verse that is like that. You may have heard this verse taught before. And you know it's a prophetical verse because it's hard. This is one of those verses where you read and you say, okay, okay, uh, yeah, I have no idea what that just says. Let's just keep going. Sip your coffee and keep going. That's why there's so many preachers that are like that, because who wants to, to spend five hours on one verse? Nobody. Let's look at it, because this is clearly linked with Daniel. He says to them, I say unto you, now, this is in regards to what he had just taught with the parable of the unjust steward who was about to lose his stewardship. I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. What is mammon? Mammon is a false god or an idol that represents money. 
unrighteous money. It's a false god. It's an idol. It's false. This is of the devil. What Jesus is telling the Jews who are about to lose their position is, I want you to make friends with the unrighteous mammon. Why? Well, because then when you fail, when the Israel will lose their position in Jesus' day, they may, they, these other people, may receive you into everlasting habitations. All right, now let's put it together. The steward is saying, I'm losing my stewardship. I'm about to become homeless. I don't know what to do. I can't dig. I can't beg. I don't want to be homeless. So he comes up with this concoction. There he writes this, this finagles the books. And then Jesus says, okay, to you, to you, those Jews, you who are listening, make to yourselves friends of the Gentiles, friends that worship mammon. Make to yourself friends with them so that in the end, in, in the turning of the game, you won't be homeless. You'll make friends with them and then they'll receive you into their home. It isn't that what the steward did. He said, okay, how much do you owe? A hundred bucks. Just give me 50 and we'll call it even. Why? So then later on, you owe me a favor. That's normal political business, isn't it? It's called lobbying and normal. There's where the amillennialists will stop. They may go a little further and say, well, actually, historically speaking, this is something that the Jews followed. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon, the unrighteous love of money. Do you not find the Jews own most of the banking institutions of the world? But there's more. Because what he's teaching here is an exchange of dominion. You had your stewardship. You had dominion. You had the rule. You were Israel. And you are about to lose your position because you crucified your own Messiah. And who's going to take the position after that? Gentiles. The church. So what he's actually telling them is, I want you to be friends with these Gentiles because you have been proud and arrogant against the Gentiles all this time. Maybe you better make some friends with those Gentiles because they're going to actually end up being the pastors of the church who will then help you when you are homeless. And not only in a figurative way, because that's why he says here, look at it, he says, that they may receive you, not into regular homes or habitations, but that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. When you're brought into the church... It's because you're a believer. And if you're a believer, now you have acquired an everlasting habitation. You then have a home in heaven. So what he is teaching them is dispensationalism. You're going to lose Judaism. You're going to lose dominion. You're going to lose your power. But make friends with these corrupt, stinking Gentiles who are worse than you, at least you think. But they're going to become believers and they're going to become pastors and leaders of the church. And so if you make friends with them, you can actually have a good relationship, hear the gospel, get saved, join the church, and then have a home in heaven. Now that's complicated, isn't it? 
we have to remember that the overarching theme of the entire Bible is that man had dominion in the garden and they lost it. Redemption is that man will regain dominion through Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to Daniel chapter 1 and we'll see how the things parallel. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a Gentile, one that worshipped mammon, idols, and various other idols, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. They're about to lose their stewardship. See how history repeats itself? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand. The rich man fired the steward, and he put somebody else in his place who was a Gentile, a Gentile king. So there's an exchange of power and dominion. We're heading down the path. Then in verse 2, we have this kind of um, a verse in here that just kind of slips in. Uh, those who are of the liberal would probably say it slipped in from the margin or something ridiculous. But it doesn't really all the way fit in because then we're going to get into this big story of how there was a couple of boys taken hostage and the meat, and we know the story, we read it, and that's why we spent so much time. But what's interesting is before we get into the, the gist of the story, he just slips in something and he says in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Oh, and by the way, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And then right away we start into this story about hostaging with the boys. But it's like we kind of just slip right over this one verse. Oh, by the way, the house of God, the temple, was ransacked, and they stole a couple of vessels. Not all of them, but some of them. They went into the house to their church, to the temple, and they took the cups, the spoons, some of the utensils, some of the tools that were made of solid gold, and they just went in there as if it was nothing, put them in a bag, and walked out. And then the siege came. They took these hostage boys. And then here's where the movie begins in your mind. You're standing there on top of the wall. Your family has just been ransacked. We've just been invaded. We've been besieged. We're all hungry. We're thirsty. We're dehydrated. We're all, some of us are starving to death already. It is terrible. I mean, it is absolutely terrible. You get up onto the wall and you can see outside of the city, out in the distance, what you see is a massive, massive army that is placed out there. I mean, there are archers. There are horsemen. There are footmen by the hundred thousands just standing there waiting for one of you to run for your life so that they can kill you in a minute. And right before they leave to go back home with your children, the hostages, you know what they do? We have a few vessels that you say are about your God. You know what that is? Before they make their exit? Now I thought of a several ways to try to say this in a polite way. And I know most of us talk differently in church than we do outside of church, so I, 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 I don't, it's not... It's not appropriate behind the pulpit. But basically what happened here is they just did a gesture to God's people about their God. And it involves a finger. We just invaded your church, God of Israel. 
the big one, you know. How do you like that? And then they make their way off into the distance with their children. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. The exchange of power just took place. You've lost your stewardship. Then follow the story. Verse 3, and it says, And the king, that's the king of Babylon, spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children of royalty. He even says, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding, science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, it says, well, and also we'll do five, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. What are they doing? He is showing tactics and strategy of this taking over of the dominion. He is trying to increase dominion. He's taking the children, the best of the best, and we're going to bring them along, and we're going to make sure that they're well-favored. Now, this had to take quite some time. I mean, how do you, you can't just go in there and just, just grab people who are healthy, good-looking boys. They have to be good in skill. They have to be good in science. They have to be well-favored. We can't have blemishes. This is a very detailed operation that is taking place in order to get the best of the best of the boys. This takes quite a bit of time, actually. There had to be a screening and a vetting process. And what they're doing is, is this man, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is also now, now he is in the stewardship. And he too is an unjust steward. King Nebuchadnezzar was crooked as get out. But he's very systematically planning and plotting for a superior future government. So even though he's unjust, the Lord, you have to give him credit here. He's planning for the future. Not like King Ahasuerus, what, he, what does he do? He wants to have a beauty pageant so that I can have the hottest wife. You know, that's what that king was doing. Or, or if you look into King Herod in Jesus' day, he has a bunch of dancing girls come to his palace and that's what they do. But not him. Let's plan for the future here so that we can really rule the world. He has the standard of excellence. So look what happens. He says, Then among these were the children, and they named them Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And then verse 7, Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. He changed their names. He's brainwashing them. He's replacing them. They had godly Jewish names that meant something, but they are brainwashing these boys into giving them totally different names that are concerning the gods that are false of the Babylon. They're trying to erase their identity. Forget completely where you came from and who you are. 
But verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So what he's doing is, is the king is brainwashing them. Part of the brainwashing is, is we're going to feed you guys different food. You, we're going to give you royal food. You're not going to eat like the peasants do, but you're going to eat of the king's meat. You're going to eat of the king's wine. What he's doing is, is he's encouraging these kids to let them know you are superior. You are going to have dominion. We are going to rule the world. What he's doing is he's setting up his future cabinet to be absolutely confident that we can rule the world. But what's interesting is, is the way that he says this, because look at it. It says that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's meat or with his wine. This isn't just simple food. This isn't like where the king says, well, I know you're Jews and I'm going to feed you a big punk of swine. The king isn't saying, well, I want you to eat pork roast. And then Daniel's like, well, I ain't eating pork roast because I'm a good Jew. That's not what he's saying here. Because look at it. It says in verse 10, the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel when he makes this request, I fear my lord, the king, who hath appointed me your meat and your drink. I'm afraid of the king. I mean, you're asking me not to do what the king told me to do, and the king clearly told me that you're supposed to have this meat and wine. He says, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. He's saying, if you don't eat this stuff, that I'm telling you that you're supposed to eat part of the brainwashing process. If you don't eat this and it don't turn out well, I'm going to get killed for it. And Daniel and him, they had a good relationship because Daniel was blessed and he was a good kid. I mean, he was a really good kid. You ever have one of those kids you know? That kid is just terrible. I mean, that kid needs spankings. I mean, he needs spankings. And as soon as his mom turns his head, I'm going to spank him anyway. And then you got some of the other kids that are just so good. I mean, they, they never disobey. They, I mean, they're right there. What can I do? What can I do? How can I help you? You know, I mean, just a real good kid. Daniel was a really good kid. And so he had this rapport. And he goes, I, I'd like to do that for you, but I can't do that. I'm gonna, I can't risk my life. What's the big deal? Because it's not pork roast that he's worried about. Throw your ribbon in here and look over in Proverbs chapter 23. Here's the proverb. Here's the royal wisdom. Proverbs 23.1 When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before you. Now, this isn't just dinner fellowship in the backyard with the grill. You're sitting with a ruler. You're sitting with the top brass. So watch yourself. Watch what's before you. Diligently, he says, watch and consider what is before you on your plate. Look at it in verse 2. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Now that's a sharp warning, I would say. Don't you think? Put a knife to your throat. Verse 3. Be not desirous of his dainties. What does that mean? What are dainties? For they are a deceitful meat. Now, some may say that he's talking just about schmoozing you. 
I'm going to set before you the highest, most expensive food, the best wine. We're going to bring the Don Perignon out. We're going to bring filet mignon. And I'm going to schmooze you and, and flatter you to get you to be on my side. But I think it's a little more than that. Because he's saying, you better put a knife to your throat before you eat some of this stuff. He calls it a deceitful meat. Look down in 6. He says, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. What's the big deal? Verse 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to you, but his heart is not with you. Be careful. Verse 8, look at this. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. He's saying this meat is deceitful. It's a delicacy. And it's not taken by itself. It's taken with wine. And what it does is it makes you want to lose your sweet words. Forget around somebody when they're sober, they're normal. And then if you get a couple of drinks in them, they start running their mouth. The food, the delicacies that he's talking about is a deceitful food. It's embellished and probably laced with some kind of mood-altering substance, some kind of enhancement to your mood, similar to wine. And if you eat it, you're going to spill the beans because we all know that loose lips sink ships. So if you're going to sit with a ruler, put a knife to your throat, man, because the whole country is riding on you. So Daniel says, I ain't eating that stuff. And it's a big deal because the the eunuch, the prince of the eunuch says, if you, if you don't eat this and we get caught, I'm dead. There's something funny going on with the food. And it's deceptive. Do you ever notice on your milk gallon, this milk is not made with GHB, GHZB, whatever it is, and there's no evidence found if it is, has GHZB, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> well, then why do you say that it's not in here? Doesn't that sound deceptive to you? But, you know, this doesn't have any of that bad stuff. But, if it, but it ain't bad, really. But it don't have none in there. <laughs> so you can be, feel safe, I guess. If you don't think there's more and more and more transvestites and transgender and all this stuff, and you think this is just happening on accident, you've got your head in the sand. We're heading towards something. Daniel says, I ain't eating that meat. And he says, let's run a test, verses 11 through 14. Let's, let's run this test. Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us just pulse, just regular, regular vegetables to eat and water to drink. Don't give us the king's hooch and the king's meat. Then let our countenances be looked upon before you, and if the countenance of the children that eat 
of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou hast seest, deal with thy servants. Let's run a test. So he consented to them this matter and proved them ten days. Verse 15, and at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat of the portion of the king's meat. Now again, regular pork roast doesn't do that. You're not going to see in 10 days of eating a different kind of pork rather than beef. You don't notice a difference of that kind of diet in 10 days. Do you see? They're messing with the food. So then Melzar, the friend of Danny, said he took away the portion of their meat and the wine and that they should just have pulse the rest of their days. And as for these four children, now you can't pass that up. They're just children. They're probably 11, 12 years old. Never going to see their mom and dad again. They're in a total foreign country, being under brainwashed conditions, being fed crooked stuff, and I mean, and they're, they're getting stuff slipped into their drinks. They're just kids. But God gave them knowledge and skill and learning and wisdom. And I'm just going to stop here just because I can't help myself. I, and I said I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to do it. If you look at this list of what's being taught here, they're taught science and wisdom and language and the literary skills. I mean, everything that you we go through, and I'm not going through them again, but they're, they go through everything that they're taught that's important. You know what's not in here? Sports. Because it's a total waste of time. Let's go play. Let's let the kids just play. That's not what he thinks. Let's teach them science. Let's teach them math. Let's teach them language. Let's make them be multilingual. Let's make a superior people. Because the unjust steward is cunning. And he's commended for being having a strategy of victory. Even though he's crooked, he gets, a, he gets commended because he was strategic about making sure that we are victorious in our land. So all the devil has to do to us, he don't have to put up a bunch of sin. All he's got to do is make, make people do nothing. And isn't, didn't the president say something like that? All it takes is for evil to prevail, is for good men to do nothing. But what does this sound like? It sounds a lot like something called eugenics, doesn't it? it sounds a lot like eugenics, actually. You know what eugenics is, don't you? The meaning of it is called good creation. It's a similar tactic that the Third Reich used in World War II, isn't it? What we really want to do to make us have dominion and power and might is we want to have this race, an Aryan race of blue-eyed, blonde-haired, dominant children. So we'll kill off the other ones. And isn't it a coincidence that the other ones just happen to be God's people, the Jews? If you don't think there's something spiritual going on here, there is. And this isn't new. That wasn't new to the Third Reich. Plato talked about it. He says, hey, you know, we could eliminate certain seed, you know, but if the scientists get a hold of it, they're actually saying, hey, we can create in genetic ways a race that is much smarter. We can alter the genetics and we can have abortions of all the kids that are deficient. 
like China. You think this isn't part of the, what the Bible teaches us? Nothing is new under the sun. Doesn't that sound a lot like evolution? Survival of the fittest. They teach all of our children that from the beginning. You're not actually made in God's image. God is not the creator. You evolved from soup. And it's the survival of the fittest. Therefore, there's no reason to have to have these old people around because they all they do is take up money and health care and this and so let's just kill them early. It's eugenics. Let's start a race so that we can have dominion that is absolutely superior than anyone else. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 1. Dominion is being transferred. And let's hold on to this power. But God does the same thing, but in a little bit different of a way. Real quick, just 1 Corinthians and then we're done. Because we know in the end that Daniel teaches us that there is thy kingdom come. There is a kingdom coming that will have full dominion, but it's not made up of extra superior people. 1 Corinthians one twenty six, For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The devil is a counterfeiter. He's going to try to do what God is doing. And it looks very similar. A superior race to take over the world. The devil is going to do it in a horrible way. And God is going to do it with misfits and sinners like me and you. And one day, we will be the kingdom. We will regain dominion under the king. It's Daniel chapter 1. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.